Our scripture for this morning is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses or barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we begin each worship service here at Grace with an opportunity of what we describe as preparing our hearts for worship. We believe that this is an essential aspect of what it means to worship the Lord so that we can approach him in a reverent and in a thoughtful way. However, as, as we take this time, as you took this time this morning, I do wonder if you've ever taken a moment to consider how you prepare yourself to meet the Lord. 
Do you have a tendency to try to separate yourself from the daily stresses of this previous week? Try to separate your anxieties from your spiritual needs, laying them aside so that you can just pick them back up after the worship service? Or do you have a tendency to conflate your daily stresses with your spiritual needs, believing that if you just came to church, that if you worshiped God, he would actually give you the type of life that you are hoping for yourself. You see, what we see in this passage with Jesus's interaction with this unnamed man at the very beginning of our passage is that we see that Jesus is pushing against both of these tendencies. You see, this man, he came to Jesus with real anxiety in his life. He was facing a serious financial hardship. He was facing a pretty intense family drama. But instead of providing this man with the answer that he wanted to hear from Jesus, Jesus wanted to address not the issue of his bank account, but the issue of his heart. You see, what we see in this passage is Jesus is teaching us as his disciples not to separate or conflate our daily stresses from our spiritual needs, but to teach us how to see that our stress is revealing our spiritual needs. This is true of every aspect of our lives, wherever we are experiencing stress. And this is especially true when we experience financial stress. Because financial stress, Jesus is showing us, is an opportunity to address real spiritual issues in our lives because how we relate to money always reveals how we are relating to God. And so as you are thinking about the financial stress that is in your life, of which all of us experience it in a myriad of ways, as you think about that stress, I encourage you not to separate it from this time of worship, to conflate it with this time of worship, I encourage you to bring it to the Lord as this unnamed man did and learn from him, as we'll see in this passage, how to address the spiritual issues in our lives that are at the heart of all of our financial stress. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together as your people this morning. We thank you for preserving this portion of your word down to this very day and delivering it to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our hearts? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? And would you give us hearts to believe these wonderful things that you are revealing to us, that we might be equipped by you to see how our greatest spiritual needs are actually connected to our financial stresses? We ask for your help in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to address the spiritual issues that are at the heart of their financial stress. And the first thing that he says is that if we are going to address the spiritual needs at the heart of our financial stress, we need to see financial stress as an opportunity to guard against covetousness. I want you to notice in this passage in verses 13 and 15 how Jesus is addressing the crowd after his initial response to the man. He says to the crowd, take care 
and be on your guard against all covetousness. The word that is translated here, be on your guard, it, it carries with it this idea of keeping watch in order to protect yourself from danger. It's a very active word. It is not passive in any way. Think about it this way. It's like when shepherds in the Old Testament are keeping watch over their flocks in the middle of the night. They're not doing that passively. They're keeping their hands close to their weapons. They're always ready to fight off thieves or predators. And so Jesus, in the same way, is calling us when we are experiencing financial stress in our lives. He is saying, stay alert and be aware of the sin of covetousness. Now, if we're going to actually be on our guard against covetousness, we need to know what it is. Covetousness, simply put, is an overwhelming desire for something, anything, that God has not given to you. Covetousness is an overwhelming desire for anything that God has not given to you. I want you to hear how God describes covetousness when he gives it to the nation of Israel in the Ten Commandments. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And as you're listening to that commandment given by God in Exodus, I want you to notice how it's described as kind of a sin that is underneath the sin. Do you guys hear how it's connected and how out of a heart consumed by the sin of covetousness flows the possibility of theft? That out of a heart consumed by covetousness flows potentially the sin of adultery. Covetousness is an overwhelming desire for anything that God has not given to you. It's, it's one thing, though, I think, to know what it is. It's another thing entirely to know how to identify it in our lives. And this is why Jesus turns from this command in verse 15, and he starts to tell his disciples in the crowd a parable, right? Because a parable is going to paint a picture for them of what this covetousness looks like so that they can be on their guard. And so he tells them this story, right? He says, there is this rich man, and this rich man is in a very unique financial situation, right? In verse 16, it says this rich man had a really, really great year, right? His land was plentiful, and now he's in this position to ask himself the question, what do I do with all of this extra income that I have? But I want you to notice Jesus's emphasis in the story that he's telling. I want you to notice that his focus is not so much on the decisions that this rich man is making, he is focusing on the desires of this rich man's heart. Covetousness does not first and foremost look like decisions in your life. It feels like a desire. I want you to look at how the rich man speaks to himself. Jesus repeats this phrase over and over. The rich man's thoughts are consumed with two words, I will. He says, I will, I will, I will do these things. Covetousness begins in our hearts. It feels like a want. You can, you can see in the rich man's 
conclusion. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be married. The, the wants of this man are exposed. And his will is moving toward that want. But as the rich man's mind and heart are being consumed by these wants, I want you to notice that they're being transformed into needs, or at least perceived needs. I want you to notice here how the rich man's thoughts turn from wanting a solution to his financial situation to the need of bigger barns. I think this is also a reason why when Jesus speaking to his disciples later brings up things that are to everybody very obvious needs like food and clothing. Covetousness has this very deceptive way in our hearts of taking a want and turning it into a need. And when our wants have turned into needs, they quickly become demands. Demands that we will make on others and demands that we will make of God. And this is exactly what we see happening in the life of this unnamed man at the very beginning of the passage, right? Because even though this guy is experiencing severe financial injustice, his want of his inheritance has turned into a need for justice that will probably lead him to Jesus, not with just a demand for that way, but the willingness to probably defraud his brother. I want you to notice that this man is not asking Jesus to actually function as an arbiter or a judge, to consider the case, to actually help the family drama be resolved for the inheritance to properly be distributed. All the man is demanding of Jesus is, tell my brother what to do so that I can get what I want. No, no, not what I want, what I need. Covetousness feels before it becomes a decision. It feels like a want, it feels like a need, and it feels like a demand. And even though Jesus cares a lot about justice, he cares more about how obviously this man is consumed by covetousness, the sin under the sin, the sin that will lead to more sin. We, we hear this same idea echoed in James chapter 4. In James, he says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is why Jesus doesn't simply want us to know what covetousness looks like, or maybe a better way to say that, what it feels like. He wants us to know where it comes from. I want you guys to notice this in verse 15, in verse 19, in verse 23, verse 34 especially. Jesus is showing us that covetousness is not wrapped up in your financial situation. So as you think about the financial stressors that you're experiencing today, whether those are financial stressors that are born out of an experience of poverty, or those are financial stressors that are born out of 
plentifulness. Covetousness is not wrapped up in your financial situation. It is wrapped up and flows out of your heart. This is what Jesus says in verse 34. He says it very plainly. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But I want you to notice, if you go to verse 15 and 23, how Jesus deepens our understanding of exactly where covetousness comes from. Look in verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness in our hearts is rooted in the belief that our life comes from what we have. Do you guys hear that? Covetousness in our hearts is rooted in the belief that your life comes from, it flows out of what you have. This is idolatry. It's believing that our life and our meaning come from the things that are created, not from our creator. And we could look at Jesus' interaction with his disciples here, and we could try to parse it out of, is it actually idolatry that he is talking about here? Is he kind of going after that religious connotation? And we don't have to really spend a whole lot of time doing that, because Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 makes it abundantly clear. In that passage, the Apostle Paul says it plainly, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul David Tripp points out in his book, Redeeming Money, he says, we don't have a budget problem, we have a treasure problem. We don't have a financial problem, we have a kingship problem. We don't have a things problem. We have a heart problem because ultimately the love of money is all about worship. Tripp will go on in that book to point out that the reason financial stress in our lives is so good at exposing this aspect of our heart is because money is really, really good at funding the things that we love or the things that we worship. This is not a call for you to give more to the church. What this sermon is about is recognizing, being woken up by Jesus to understand that it may be that your biggest financial stress is showing you your biggest idol. Knowing this is especially important when we turn to think about how do we guard against this. We don't guard against it by trying to address our spending. We don't guard against this by trying to figure out different ways of saving or different ways of having better fiscal habits. This means confessing the sin of idolatry confessing to the Lord we have loved our things more than we have loved him, that we have looked to the things that he has provided us more for life than we have looked to him, the fountain of life. It means not focusing on our behavior. It means trying to ask the Lord to get to our hearts. It means approaching guarding similar to how you approach weeding. 
I will say one of the things that I know my dad taught me how to do well was weed a garden. That was a lesson that came up regularly because <laughs> apparently I needed to learn it. If you go into your garden and you see weeds are plentiful and you simply lob off the top of those weeds and never address the root, what you will find is that in very quick succession, those weeds will come back, but they will not come back the same. They will come back stronger. And to actually remove the weeds from our garden, we have to get at the root and pull it out where it is actually embedded. This is what confessing the sin of idolatry is. It is confessing the root of our sin, not just our financial behaviors. What this means is that every financial decision and every financial stress that you find yourselves in or every spending habit that you don't seem to be able to break, all of those are opportunities to guard against covetousness. At some point in the next 24 hours, you are going to spend money or save money or stress about money or think about money. These are all opportunities to guard against, to stay alert, to stay awake and address the sin under the sin if it happens to be there. Beware of the wants that you hear in your brain of those wants that are turning into demands and needs. Especially listen to how you pray. Because prayer reveals what you truly believe. But if we remove these weeds, as it happens in our garden, when you remove a weed, you create a hole, right? And in the same way, that addressing covetousness in our lives create, or the same way weeds create holes in our lives when they're removed, removing covetousness from our hearts leaves a hole. And this is why Jesus says that if we are going to guard against covetousness, we not only need to remove the covetousness from our hearts, we need to cultivate contentment. I want you guys to notice verses 24 through 33. And in verse 22, I want you to notice that Jesus is focusing more here on what we should be cultivating and uh, as opposed to what we should be guarding against. He's describing the rich fool, this man whose life was destroyed by covetousness, who was not rich toward God. And then he says to his disciples, I tell you, therefore, do not be anxious about your life. It's as if Jesus is looking to his disciples and he's saying, Listen, guys, there is so much contentment that is yours because of the fact that you are rich toward God. So how do we cultivate this contentment? Well, I think Jesus would actually teach us here to, to remember the whole gospel if we want to cultivate contentment. We've heard these verses many, many times. In verses 24 to 31, Jesus talks about birds and he talks about flowers. And what Jesus is saying is, is when you look at the birds and when you look at the flowers, you're being reminded of the gospel. And you may think to yourself, how in the world, Eric, are you getting the gospel out of birds and out of flowers? And I think the reason we struggle to see it here in this passage is because we have a very small view of the gospel. 
For most of us, the gospel is simply that in and through Christ, we are forgiven of our sin. We talked about this when I preached out of Philemon. But in this passage, Jesus is pointing to something else that is true because of what he has accomplished for us. And that is that we have been adopted into God's family. I don't want you to miss this because we can get kind of distracted by all the things that Jesus is doing with birds and flowers and all these backs and back and forth. Don't miss this. The reason that thinking about birds or thinking about flowers cultivates contentment in financial situations is because it reminds us of who we are in Christ, that we are God's children. Notice verse 30. He says, look, the nations, those who don't know God, they are the ones who crave, that's what the word seek is literally translated at, they crave food and they crave clothing, right? These needs. But the one who trusts in Christ, who follows Jesus, can know that they have a heavenly father. He says, your father knows that you need these. This, this makes perfect sense when you just say it in normal everyday language, right? You care about your children or your grandchildren more than the birds at your bird feeder. You care about your children more than the flowers in your garden. We all know this. And Jesus is saying, by looking at the birds and by looking at the flowers, we can know God cares more for his children than these. He is providing for these. That means he will provide for you because he cares about you, his child, more than these other things that he's got going on. We know that that's true in our own families. It's also true in God's family. And it's when we remember this aspect of the gospel, that in and through Christ, we have been made not just people who are forgiven of our sin, but people who have been adopted into God's family as his children. When we actually remember that in the midst of our financial stress, That's where we can cultivate contentment by resting in the gospel. This is where Jesus goes in verse 32. He says, fear not, don't worry. And you think to yourself, Jesus has no idea what my financial situation is. And Jesus says, you don't need to worry, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In verse 32, Jesus is encouraging his disciples not to seek after possessions, not to seek after an earthly kingdom, but to recognize that God himself is looking forward to providing them a kingdom that will never perish or fade, an eternal kingdom. You see, the life that is consumed by covetousness, consumed by worry, is striving after an inheritance. And what we find in the gospel is the ability to rest in the inheritance that God is keeping for us. This is what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Jesus is saying it looks like remembering the gospel, resting in the whole gospel, and putting our hope in the kingdom that is to come. That when Christ returns, we know that our inheritance will be delivered to us. And the person who does that, Jesus says, will find a freedom and a rest beyond their understanding. Look in verse 33. In verse 33, Jesus continues and he says, listen, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Hear me, Jesus is not saying that if we are remembering and resting in the gospel, that that will result in some type of life that looks like asceticism, where there's some type of merit in poverty. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that resting and remembering the gospel results in contentment in your heart, it results in gratitude in your life, and that results in generosity toward other people. You'll be wanting to sell your possessions and to give to those who are in need because your hope is not in those possessions. Your hope is in the kingdom that you know is to come. It reminds me of what it is like to set up a life insurance policy for your kids, or I should say for you, for your kids. (laughs) If you've ever done this before, or you wanna think about doing it, obviously I encourage you to do these things. When you go to the bank and you set up a will and testament, when you set up life insurance policies, you're not doing that for yourself. What you're doing is you're setting up financial systems that will ensure that your children or your family members are taken care of when you're not around. And as you're doing that, what you're creating are these systems that in their lives should be creating a sense of certainty. And you might say, well, listen, Eric, this analogy totally breaks down, right? Because the guy at the beginning of this passage is saying, Jesus, will you help my brother recognize he needs to divide my inheritance, that the will is telling him to do something and he's not doing it. And my argument is, this proves the point. God is not like us. The drama that we might experience when it comes to inheritance in our lives, the drama that we might experience when it comes to life insurance or wills, these are simply analogies to show that God's promises are more certain than man's. God will fulfill his will for your life. And so in the midst of your financial stress, remember what is in God's will. That he will fulfill his promises to you in Christ. He is housing, he is guarding, it says in 1 Peter, the inheritance that is yours through Christ. Not so that you might live a prosperous or an impoverished life now, but so that your hope might be in the eternal inheritance that he has for you. At the heart of your financial stress is an opportunity for your spiritual growth. I hope you see that. I hope you feel that. It's an opportunity 
to guard against the spiritual danger that is covetousness in our lives. It's an opportunity to ask the Lord to test your heart, to test and to consider what you want, to test and to consider what you feel you need, to test and to consider what you are demanding of God. It's an opportunity to confess your idolatry, the sin under the sin, the worship of the things that are created and not the creator. It's an opportunity to turn back to the Lord and receive his grace so that you can begin to cultivate not covetousness in your life, but contentment by remembering and resting in the gospel. To remember that in Christ you are secure, as secure as God's child, knowing that God's will for your life is certain, that you have a kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth that is more certain than your bank accounts. It's more certain than your particular standard of living. It will bring you more joy than any of these things. This is Jesus' hope for us as we gather for worship this morning. Not that we would separate or conflate our financial stresses from our spiritual needs, but that we would learn how to see our financial stress as leading us to address those spiritual needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, how it does what you have promised it to do, to sift our thoughts and intentions, to reveal what is really going on in our hearts so that we might confess our sins to you and receive the assurance of your forgiveness. We might receive the wonderful news of what you have accomplished for us through Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to be at work in our hearts as we go into this week, that where we experience financial stress, you would be helping us to turn to you, to confess our idolatries where they exist, and to cultivate contentment in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.